thank you very much nayan maharaj for joining today it's an honor to have your association online uh, i have been running this monks podcast for the last uh, several months and basically i started this because i found that uh, a forum where devotees can discuss uh, issues rather than just have one directional classes that can that stimulates the audience in a different way and of course i was this was excuse for me to get the association of senior devotees also so this is watched mainly in india i am based in india and i travel across the world I spend about 6 months in america usually uh, traveling and doing some outreach over there so since uh, uh, i have read about you read your articles and books and heard your classes it's a great honor for me to have you uh on this podcast and uh, today i was thinking since you have been a part of iskon's history you have also studied the history of religions i have heard your classes on world religions also so i was thinking we could talk about krishna consciousness in a broader historical context you know how uh in the western world how eastern spirituality became appealing how krishna consciousness also was a part of it and where things stand right now so it is more like a history of ideas in krishna consciousness is that yes yeah that's fine, fine with you yes yeah you. sure yeah okay uh i think if i may i'm going to walk this back a little bit because if we read mahabharata or bhagavatam these great classics uh we find that in india there was a different notion of religion than we are used to now in the modern times and so perhaps i was just talking about this yesterday we did a class with uh, south america and i was explaining in spanish now do it in english but uh if you look at ancient india and probably the best sustained picture we have of ancient india in terms of a a lot of information about a specific historical period rather than jumping to different yugas and different situations but a sustained historical window that of course would be mahabharata and of course the two great itihasas the two great historical epics of india are mahabharata and ramayan uh in the case of ramayan it takes place much earlier than mahabharata so we're not getting as good a picture let's say of something well, let's say mahabharata is much closer to our yuga to our historical period and also um the ramayan does not claim to be or is not trying to be a general history of india whereas mahabharata as the very name indicates is a history of great bharata and we look at bharata south asia because of course in, we're talking about regions certainly including modern pakistan and including uh, parts of afghanistan and so on and so we're looking at south asia a, a very big piece of it there is less information or less events take place let's say in south india below the vindhya hills although some things take place there 
but not as much. So we're we're really getting a, uh, a sustained, detailed look at North and Central India. Oh. Or, or, or Mahabharata, I mean, including certainly Pakistan, as I said, and including Nepal, what is now today Nepal and so on, and even parts of Afghanistan. So, so we look at that culture, therefore I'm referring to Mahabharata because I think it gives us a very clear picture of what they understood as religion. And, Interesting. and so the first point I think to be noticed- Maharaj, which, just a minute, yeah. sorry. Yeah. My internet connection is a little unstable. So Anand Lila Mataji, is it okay if we don't have you on the video? Because the lesser the number of videos, then the internet bandwidth gets distributed. Is it okay with you? Did you hear that, Anandalila? You can be on the call, but uh, oh, if you could, if you're not on the video, because his internet is not very strong. So if you take your video off, that'll make it easier. Oh, okay. Yes, and for you. those for those who are watching, Anandalila is my disciple who does a very important service. She arranges all the programs and the posts, everything, and so. Um, so um, there's a very different notion of what religion is. And so I'd like to maybe that's a preface to our discussion. Yes, my certainly. In what sense is it different? Like not practicing rituals or what is the sense of religion in the Mahabharata? Not in that sense. They, don't, they actually don't do rituals in the Mahabharata. They mostly, I mean, not very much. They mostly, it's actually analogous to science. They do what we would call rituals but the the what they're really doing in their fire sacrifices, in the mantras and so on, it's really much more analogous to what, what we call science. It's not identical to modern science, but it's in many ways analogous to it, almost in some ways more analogous than what we call religion today. So the, fir the first point I want to make is that it's remarkable that in the Mahabharata, we do not see really anything like a religious institution. If you think about it, we take for granted today religions like uh, Hinduism is a religion, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, other smaller groups. We take that as that's a religion. There's and they have institutions, they have, uh, you know, it's like I'm a Muslim or I'm a Christian or I'm a Hindu or whatever. And there are institutions with hierarchies and so on. So you don't really find corporate religion in that sense. If, I mean, think about the Mahabharata. There, there are no institutions, there are no officers or officials who are responsible, let's say like the Pope, or and so on. So um, now in Islam, they although they say they don't have a formal priesthood, but they really do. And so, um, so if you look at India, for example, it's it's. I think we can compare it to. Well, there's a few reasons why you don't find institutional religion. There are several reasons. One is that uh, they don't have religious wars. They don't fight over religion. 
there's a much more cosmopolitan, much more mature attitude toward religion, which goes back to the Rig Veda, where it said that uh, even though there's one ultimate truth, different sages invoke it in different ways, like through different names. So if you look at the history of India going all the way back, as far as we can go, and, and certainly beyond the horizon of, of uh, normal historiography, uh, they're not fanatical. They have, there's a very cosmopolitan, wise view that, uh, and, and this, this view of religion going back thousands of years, this mature understanding, and I'll explain a little later these terms, but we find mo- philosophical monotheism rather than tribal monotheism as we find in the Middle East. And, and frankly, the three religions that come from the Middle East, we find a tribal monotheism where my God can beat up your God and this is the real God and you've got something less. So this stands in stark contrast to the philosophical, not tribal monotheism that you find in the Indo-European civilization. You find it certainly in India in its most I would say uh, philosophically advanced and culturally advanced form, but also you find it in the Greco-Roman world. So, what, because we're talking about the Indo-European civilization, and we know by linguistic analysis, we know in, in, that it's obvious that there was going way back into prehistory a an Indo-European civilization. And so this Indo-European civilization is actually the only civilization in the world, both in India and in the West, that independently developed comprehensive, systematic, philosophical systems. So that, for example, in uh, China, uh, you have wisdom traditions like you know Confucius or, or Tao and so you have wisdom traditions but not systematic philosophy, where you systematically go over, for example, ontology, the nature of existence, and epistemology, uh, you know, the nature of knowledge, and logic, and political philosophy, axiology, which is sort of like the philosophy of values and so on. And so you find this as, as original thought, only the Indo-European system in, in the Islamic world, of course, the uh, the so-called Renaissance, Renaissance, which is a revival of the classical world, ancient Greco-Roman mm. world, began in the Islamic world, which at that time was more much more advanced and civilized than Europe. I mean, back then, yeah. back then the Islamic world was sort of cosmopolitan, and the and the, and the Europeans were sort of violent terrorists, and so um, so the, so but but the Islamic Renaissance really was based on uh the rediscovery of greco-roman yes i think there was a kingdom which fell the byzantine empire or something which fell and then a lot of uh, ancient texts were discovered well this is even yeah yeah but this is even yeah yeah it's true but it began even many centuries before the fall of uh constantinople so there was the discovery for example just one question maharaj when you said tribal monotheism versus philosophical monotheism yes. generally the greco-roman religions as well as hinduism is thought of as polytheistic so when you no, say philosophical no, no, monotheism, no, that, what exactly uh, no that is uh sloppy history and most people if they engage in history at all 
it's sloppy history. The fact is that, for example, in Plato, in the single most famous philosophical work in Western tradition, Western tradition is Plato's Republic. And in Plato's Republic, he explicitly rejects polytheism. In fact, he says that um, Homer should not be taught in the Paideia, which was the internationally famous and prestigious uh, Greek school curriculum. So throughout the Roman Empire, the people who were rich or sophisticated, they would go to these Greek schools of Paideia. And so uh, it was kind of like the, uh, it's, it's almost like, let's say a rich family in America might send their child to Oxford or something or, or to Paris. Oh, okay. And so, so the centerpiece of Greek education was Homer. And Plato says that we should not study Homer because he presents this childish polytheism. And, uh, and so Plato is arguing powerfully in favor of monotheism. And in the Greco-Roman world, there are others, there are many uh, monotheists, but they're philosophical. Monotheists, they're not fanatical, they're not sectarian. They just talk philosophically about one God. Polytheism was on a popular level. I mean, even it was on a popular level. It wasn't, it wasn't among the philosophers or the intellectuals. They tended more often to be monotheists. And the same thing in India. Uh, you do not find polytheism among the philosophers or the theologians. Shankar was not a polytheist. And uh, certainly Ramanuja and Madhva and uh, no serious philosopher in Indian history, I think, was a polytheist. Because if you're, because if you're doing systematic philosophy, it's just like in science. The way science advances is you take lots of phenomena, you take lots of symptoms, or this causes that, that causes this, and you try to find a, a powerful underlying cause or explanation. You know, they call it the grand unified theories. And so, so in the same way, it, it's just the nature of rationality itself, of human reason, that you you categorize, you do basically, you do two things in human reason. You, you try to find categories. Let's say you see a horse, then you see another horse, but in order to do zoology or science, you've got to have the category horse, yes. not this horse or that horse, but horse. And so, and then you get the category mammal, and then you get the category living thing, and then you get the category life. And so, and so you're, so that's what you do. You try to find causes and effects and you try to find ever greater in the sense of more explanatory categories. And so yes. therefore to look for a single truth that explains all truths is rationally required. If you're not looking for that, if you're not looking for something like God or whatever name you use, you know, if you want to work around your own bad childhood experiences. So, so whatever, you know, whatever word doesn't trigger you, unless you're looking for an ultimate truth, you're not a rational human being, or you're rational up to a certain point, then you cut off, you get off the elevator, and, and you say that at this point, I will no longer be rational, I'm no longer looking for truth, I'm no longer looking for a greater category that explains all other categories. And so, for example, if you look at Aristotle, Aristotle says there's a God, but he, he says it's logically required. 
Aristotle is not like a real religious guy. Uh, mm. But he says that philosophically, it's required. And he calls God, among the different names, he calls God the unmoved mover. Unmoved mover, yeah. So because in that sense, Aristotle's giving an argument from contingency. And the argument from contingency is that as the Buddhists have noticed, uh, if you look around the universe, everything that we can detect in the universe uh, has a beginning and an end, is contingent, is caused by something else. And so therefore, since nothing exists independently and everything depends upon something else, the simple question is, why does anything exist instead of nothing? Because we can do a thought experiment and we can imagine a universe in which nothing, well, we can imagine that there's not a universe. We can imagine that nothing ever existed. So therefore, Aristotle's reasoning that the world does exist, and therefore there must be a non-contingent being. There must be something that exists that does not depend on something else for its existence, and therefore by you break the infinite regress of causes and effects. Hmm, yes, Aristotle's concerned with breaking infinite regresses in various ways. And so, so my point is that um, if someone is not looking for the supreme category or the supreme entity that explains all other entities and categories, then that person is simply not acting rationally. They have given up the great human project of trying to reason one's way to higher truth. There's no rational way that one cannot look for a God, or if you don't want a religious entity, you just want a supreme cause like Aristotle, you can call it the unmoved mover, but you have to be looking for that. And so therefore, in Greco-Roman civilization and in India, people who were rational, who were philosophical, were not polytheists, because polytheism ultimately is not a serious explanation not only that not only that um if we look at polytheisms around the world including uh well uh you know the greco-roman world and just all over the world you, know, you find these polytheisms what we find is that practically none of them assert that the gods are the original cause practically all these monotheism uh, polytheisms Practically all the polytheisms assert that above this community of gods or goddesses, there is another higher cause, which actually explains things. And so even the polytheists didn't really believe that they were yeah. a serious explanation of where everything comes from. So that's why... So I think... Yes, as people, because, you know, the, the mass of people, they're not looking for philosophical truth. They're looking for money. They want, you know, they want grandma to get healthy again. They want, uh, you know, to defeat their enemies. They're, they have very worldly desires. And therefore, they really don't care about ultimate philosophical truth. They just want to know who exists out in the universe, in our world, here in the physical world, who has the power to give me what I want? 
And so because in fact, there is a cosmic administration, it's just natural. There's a cosmic administration. Mm. There are in Sanskrit, they're called devas. And uh, so, and even from Sanskrit, we even get names in other languages, like for example, Jupiter. Uh, we have the word uh, deva uh, or divya, like diva, like heaven. And so uh, the root form in Sanskrit is Dyu, D-Y-U. And then of course, Peter is father. So Jupiter means father of heaven. Oh, okay. So, so therefore people, ordinary people are not philosophers or not transcendentalists or not looking for ultimate truth. They just want to get by and therefore they negotiate with whoever can give them what they want. Okay. That's, that's where you get polytheism. So if I understand right, what you're saying is that at a philosophical level, people were searching for ultimate reality, but general people were worshiping different deities. So then wouldn't the logical way to say, reconcile, at least that's what Max Muller did that he talked about henotheism or many, many Indian nationalists talked about monism as the way to unite the plethora of gods. Yeah, that so, was, yeah, yeah, that, that was, a, yeah, that was a disaster. Uh, this monism as a way to unite everyone. Because, so was, yeah, just, just. Wasn't a, that what Shankara also did? Shankara no, also was a no, monistic Shankaracharya? You know, Shankara did that, but he, he wasn't an Indian nationalist. Yeah, of course. If, if you, if you look at, I wrote an article on this, actually, I can send it to you. I look forward um, to it. Yeah, because the American Academy of Religion did, did a special issue of their journal, which was called uh, Who Speaks for who Hinduism. Speaks, yeah. Uh, I read that article. Yeah, yeah. Who Speaks for Hinduism because there's so many voices. So I said, I, I titled my article, For Whom Does Hinduism Speak? Because according to scholars, according to scholars, um, by far the largest segment of, of Hinduism is, is Vaishnavism. In fact, most, yes. yes. So Vaishnavism is a single, by far largest component of Hinduism. And uh, Shankara does not at all speak for Vaishnavas. So when you try to pretend, when you create this historical fiction that there's just one religion, uh, which is called Hinduism, uh, which, for example, jo Joseph O'Connell, who was a prominent Indologist at the University of Toronto, he wrote an article, which I quoted a lot in my paper, in which he's, he asked the question, for how long have people in India use the word Hindu. What is the history of the use of that word? And of course, we know that it uh, comes from a mispronunciation of the word Sindhu, that the Sindhu yeah. River, Sindhu River uh, historically separated the, uh, back in those days, as you'd say, Zoroastrian world, later became the Muslim world from India. And so the people on in the Persian side uh, pronounce the word Sindhu as Hindu. Just like, for example, the famous god 
of Zoroastrianism is uh, Ahura Mazda. And Ahura is just their pronunciation of Asura. And um, because there are two different meanings of Asura, it can mean Asura, not Asura, not a godly person. So in that sense, like a demon, Asura. But there's another word, Asura, which they were referring to, which comes from the Sanskrit word Asu, which is the synonym of prana. It's just like when Krishna says in the Gita, Gatasums, Gatasums, Chan, Anushanti, Pandita, the wise lament neither for the living or the dead. The word for the living is uh, Agata Asu, one whose Asu, whose prana, whose life energy has not gone. So Gatasu, Gata Asu, one whose life is gone, and Agatasu. So from okay. that word Asu, which means life, they, they, they have the word Asura, which means something like the god of life, and and they pronounce it Ahura, or for example, the the suffix homo, like homogeneous. Homo is just Sanskrit samo. Why Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, Samo Hansarva Bhuteshu, I'm equal to all living beings. So from Sanskrit samo, you get the Greek homo. Homo. Okay. Yeah. And, and and so on and so forth. So so what you find in medieval Indian literature and even Gaudiya Vaishnava literature, especially, is that when the Muslims invaded India, because they use the word Hindu to refer to everyone on the other side of the Sindh River, Sindh yes, River. And therefore, they use the word Hindu for Buddhists, for people we would now call Hindus, just basically anyone that wasn't a Muslim was a Hindu, someone from Hindustan. Okay. And what we find is that, you know, people today we would call Hindus only use the word Hindu. They only use that word when they're talking. As a contradiction from the... From the no, they only use the word when they're talking to Muslims. Yes, exactly. They don't it's use the word when they're talking to themselves. When people yeah. follow Sanatana Dharma, Vaidika, Jan, whatever you want to call it, when they're talking to each other, they never call themselves Hindu. It's just when they're trying to communicate with Muslims that can't, you know, then they say, okay, we're Hindus. But only when they're talking to Muslims. Then it's what happened is, when you have the Indian independence movement going back to the 19th century, or, or at first, not just a political movement, but simply trying to reassert the value of indigenous Indian culture, or Vedic culture. And of course, there's all those different movements. I mean, one of them is the Arya Samaj, and uh, you know, there's all kinds of figures, famous figures in, in the- um, Bengal Renaissance was there. Yeah, yeah, but not only because yeah, in the 19th century, there were different movements asserting because the because the European culture was seducing the bright young men of India. And so therefore there was yeah. this back. And so but it was in that spirit that you get a figure like um, uh, Vivekananda and then later Dr. Radha Krishnan. And um, what O'Connell's done is he's traced this in the, the, the speeches and the lectures of these people. 
and they came up with a, a conscious strategy. The strategy was that uh, we have to unite because the strength of the Hindus or the Muslims is they have like one religion. They have one religion. So although even among the Muslims, of course, you have the Sufis who are like sort of like the Bhakti yogis of Islam who are very favorable to Vaishnavas. And so therefore the they, you know, Muslim leaders would just kill them. They, the, the Muslim mm. leaders not only killed, you know, let's say sometimes Hindus, but they killed even Muslims who were more open-minded and not fanatical. Yeah. So, so anyway, um, they said, we have to have one religion. So let's basically pretend they invented this idea that if we go with Shankara's impersonal idea, then no one will argue it's Vishnu, no, it's Shiva, no, it's Shakti, no, it's this, it's that. So in order to avoid that kind of argument, let's just go with Shankara and say, and so what they did is they kind of, the medicine was much worse than the disease because in the name of avoiding sectarian disagreements among Indians, they basically destroyed the most important traditions in Indian history. Destroyed? Well, it, well destroyed philosophically. Because to say that the ultimate truth is Nirakar, Anama, Arupa, Brahma is to completely, I mean, I mean, philosophically, it obliterates Vaishnavism. It violates the most sacred principles of Vaishnavism and just it's unrecognizable. And so the idea that there is Hinduism is a religion, it's one religion with Shankar's philosophy that has a history of about a hundred years. Indian Sanatan Dharma, Vaidika Dharma has a history of God only knows how many thousands of years. Hinduism as a religion is about a hundred years old. And it's interesting because the Indian Supreme Court made a decision many years ago after independence about who is a Hindu because they had these sectarian laws in terms of burial procedures and, and, and wedding procedures and different things, marriage. And so they were trying to keep peace. So they said, okay, you know, Hindus can do it their way and Muslims can do it their way and so on. So they had to give a legal definition of what a Hindu is. And the legal definition they gave Anyone who is not a Muslim, Christian, no, something like that is no. a more neg negative definition. No, 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 it's not the definition. The first definition they gave is a Hindu is someone who accepts the Vedas as sacred. So you have this interesting, oh. you have this interesting situation where you are a Hindu if you accept the Vedas as sacred, but the Vedas don't accept Hindu. That's amazing. Yeah, it's 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 a glaring contradiction. I'm Hindu. I Hindu because I accept the Vedas, but the Vedas don't accept the concept of Hindu. Yes, Maharaj. But Hinduism is ultimately just a name. Wasn't there some sense of unif unified identity previously also? Say at the time yes. of the Mahabharata. Yes, yes, the there, yes, there was. Yes, there was. 
and 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 that was that was the maturity of Indian civilization. They didn't kill each other over theological disagreements. They understood so that Vaishnavas, except Shiva as a great personality, and serious Shaivas, you know, ones who are intelligent, serious. to just tell that person so they don't call again here. Oh, okay. So sorry about that. Um, however, when, for example, Shankara presented his philosophy, which even Western scholars who are not Vaishnavas and not Shankarites and they're not anything, they're just Western scholars, they say that Shankara is not really explaining the Vedas, the Upanishads, Gyanakanda. He's really giving his own philosophy. Even Western mm -hmm. scholars have said in terms of Brahma Sutra, Shankara is not really explaining what's there in the language of the Brahma Sutras. He's imposing something. Just like, for example, Shankara in, in one commentary, in one of the Upanishads, where it says tapas, or tapasya, austerity, asceticism, Shankara says, well, that means gyan. That's absurd. You know, just look in the dictionary. Look in the Sanskrit dictionary. Tapas, or tapasya, does not mean gyan. It means tapasya. It's a completely different word. And so, and so Shankar, or even that Tatwamasi, that you are, of course that you are, because you're also Brahman. Krishna says that in the Bhagavad Gita, that, you know, we are eternal and God is eternal. That doesn't mean you're God. And so to say that Tatwamasi means that we are all God is absurd. So, therefore... Oh, okay. Yeah, therefore, um, saying that Shankara speaks for all of us is absurd. It's ludicrous. It has nothing to do with Indian history. It's a complete fabrication. And so because people like Vivekananda or Dr. Radhakrishna, their concerns were not theological. They were political. They wanted to intellectually you could say free india i mean not political in the sense they wanted to you know take guns and, and 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 shoot the british but but they wanted to defend indian culture i remember that i was once uh, hosted by a very nice indian gentleman uh in ann arbor michigan he was actually a, a, a professor of medicine at one of the best universities in america university of michigan and his daughter, his daughter is a devotee, member of ISKCON. And his daughter's husband is my disciple. So that's the connection. And so we, we were staying there with them. And they're very nice people. They're very, very nice people. And so uh, this gentleman just passed away, but he, um, he was a devotee of uh, Vivekananda. And I was saying, I don't think Vekananda really is presenting accurately Vedic knowledge. And he was saying, yeah, so what I did is I wanted to be fair. 
So every morning, and he had a, the whole library, like the collected works of Vivekananda. So every morning before breakfast, I would read. I would, you know, just read in Vivekananda's lectures. And then we would discuss. And I saw that he doesn't understand Vedic culture. For example, he was doing this one-upsmanship. You know, he wanted, he was trying to show that it was kind of like the best defense, a good offense. So because the Europeans in India were saying everyone should be a Christian, which is another ludicrous thing, everyone should be a Christian. So then Vivekananda was saying, actually, you know, Hinduism is greater. And, and that's what he, you know, he was trying to show that this is really not only is Hinduism not inferior to Christianity, it's actually greater. And yeah, so I think he said there is only one God, but there is that there is only God, or we are all God. That well, was his no, way of. No, no, I, I'm making a different. Anyway, I was going to a different. Yeah, I mean, he says many things, but but the point I was making that I specifically read was, yeah, where Vivekananda he was kind of like this moral one-upsmanship. He was saying that in Christianity, they're always talking about sin, sin, sin. He said, a Hindu, a Hindu will never talk about sin. In, in the, you know, Bhagavad Gita, there's, they never talk about sin. That's absurd. That's absurd. I, actually, when I was translating Mahabharata, I did a computer search of the first 300 chapters of the Mahabharata, which is basically Adi Parva, Savha Parva, and uh, Adi and Savha Parva, under the word sin. And it's everywhere. Papa, Papishta, most sinful. Uh, it's all over the place. And Krishna, there are many, several words for sin or offense or evil in the Bhagavad Gita, Agha. Hmm. The word Aga, the word Papa, the word, uh, anyway, right now it's just sort of slipping my mind, but there are anus. I mean, I, I mean, there are, there are a number of words that mean directly sin. Krishna in chapter 16 of the Gita talks about the Asuras how, and how wicked they are. And so the idea, and, and so I can see Vivekananda, uh, he, he, what he's saying is, is not at all accurate. So, but I wanted to be fair. So it turns out at the University of Michigan, there was a, a professor of Indology, very famous, just forgetting his name now. He's an Indian Brahmin. He, he was actually an Indian Brahmin. Nice guy, very nice person. I can't, I can't remember his name now, but a very, very, very one, of the, one of the most famous Indologists in the world, actually. He was a very highly respected scholar. And so I went to see him. And uh, I said, I was reading Vivekananda, it seems like he's, he doesn't understand so well Hinduism or, or the Vedas. And so this professor, this world-renowned professor, Indian Brahmin, he started laughing. He said, Vivekananda, he never read the Vedas. He knew nothing about the Vedas. And, and, and so... He just laughed at the idea that Vivekananda actually had understood the Vedas. And so you have someone deciding what will be the philosophy of Hinduism who has no idea of, of, of the intellectual, theological, and religious history of India, who's just dealing in stereotypes, 
positive stereotypes. That, oh yeah, Hindus are tolerant. We're not fanatical like the Christians. We don't talk about sin. I mean, it's true that historically Vedic culture was not fanatical, but to say they don't talk about sin is absurd. I mean, the Manu, they talk about it all the time. You have to talk about it because you have to, it's, it's like, it's like, you know, if you're raising a child, you don't merely tell your child, eat healthy food. You tell the child what not to eat. Like, don't put that in your mouth. Don't eat this. It's not good for you. Any sane parent tells her child, do this, don't do that. How can you raise a child and not tell the child what not to do? Or this is bad. Like, it's, it's, let's say you have a child that takes a stick and hits another child over the head. You say, you never do that. That's terrible. You can't, you know, it's, and that's what the Vedas do. That's what the Bhagavad Gita does. That's what all the Shastras do. It would be ridiculous. It would be absurd to say that they don't tell people what not to do and also what to do. Because if you do certain things, you'll destroy your life. Hmm. So therefore, um, this idea that Vivekananda is, you know, championing uh, Hinduism, he's, he's inventing his own religion. And amazingly enough, a lot of people just, you know, so-called Hindus, they just ate it. They ate it up. And what they all have in common, Vivekananda and all the people in India that think that, yeah, that's our religion, is that none of them actually know what the Vedas are. None of them actually know Indian history. Dr. Radhakrishna was relatively quite philosophical. Isn't he? he wrote a commentary on the, he wrote on the Brahma Sutras and other places. But he, he also was, tried to... Dr. Radhakrishnan uh, also had a political agenda. As we know, he was the president of India. Yeah. He was, I mean, he was obviously a scholar. Obviously, but but he was he was an impersonalist. He was happy with that Vivekananda's idea that Shankara is the Hindu philosopher. Dr. Radha Krishna was happy for, with it for a different reason, because he himself was a committed impersonalist, and therefore he okay. was not concerned with history. He was concerned is what's the truth. The truth is that there's no personal God. So therefore, it, it's Dr. Radha Krishna that Prabhupada's quoting, where what Krishna says, Manmana Bhavamad Bhakto Madhyaji Mangnamasu. Six times. I mean, a sloka. That's a sloka, which is a type of meter. It's a verse, yeah. four lines. Each line has eight syllables. So in only 32 syllables, in only 32 syllables in one Sanskrit sentence, Krishna uses the word me six times. Mm. And in the first line of his commentary, Radha Krishna says, not to Krishna. It's like, it's like let, let's say you, you're speaking to another person and you say, give it to me, do it for me. You have to come to me. It's only for me. Do it for me. Come to me. You say that just like that. And the person standing next to you says, he doesn't mean to him. Hmm. You say six times to me in one sentence, give it to me, to me, to me, to me, to me, to me. 
And then immediately afterwards, someone says, he doesn't mean to give it to him. That's absurdity. It's complete nonsense. And that's Dr. Radhakrishnan. So Vivekananda, Vivekananda promotes this, this Shankaravad because he is clueless about what actual Indian intellectual history is or theological or philosophical history, not a clue. And Dr. Radhakrishnan promotes it because he thinks it's the truth. He doesn't care about the history. He just thinks this is the truth. And therefore, let's just basically, let's, let's kidnap all Hinduism. And here's a chance to promote what I think is the truth and get all Hindus to accept it. In this broader historical context now makes helps us understand why Bhaktisiddhanta Thakur and Prabhupada were so strongly critical of impersonalism then. Yeah. 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 Putting Dr. Radhakrishnan Vekananda in charge of the, you know, defining Hinduism, like let's say it's like putting the fox in charge of the hen house. You know, it's just uh, because you have one person who is clueless about Indian history, has some romantic fabricated idea. And then you have Dr. Radhakrishnan who just wants to take advantage of Vivekananda and push Shankara to destroy Vaishnavism. Because if you accept Shankara, then you totally reject Vaishnavism. So the price you pay to accept this sort of Hindu nationalist fabricated, you know, this is what Hindus believe, is that you offend and attack and ultimately philosophically destroy what most Hindus believe. And then meanwhile, down on the ground, down on the ground, you get people in villages or in cities, whatever, who just want to pray like, okay, make me healthy, make my family healthy. You know, I want money. To this day, you know, we have so many Hindus that go to our temples and they, you know, they, 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 they form a line, they go in front of the deities, offer their prayers, make a little donation. God only knows what they're praying for. If you ask, yeah. if you ask the simple question, how many of them are praying for pure loving service to Krishna? Some of them are, but we don't. You know, it's like we don't ask questions to people who are making donations. Yeah, but like you mentioned, that's almost like a universal thing. Even at the time of the Mahabharat, you said popular religion was so. That's yes. not exceptional. Now, just going back one point, Maharaj. Uh, at one level, the there was a need at that time to unify India. And for many Indians, including me, my spiritual journey began because of a, you could say, a nationalistic pride. I had heard about Swami Vivekananda going to Chicago and speaking over there. And um, so in one sense, that for every country or every group of people, a certain amount of, uh, we could say, not pride necessarily in the egoistic sense, but pride in the sense of honor. Yeah, you could say national, national, national self-esteem, national honor. Yeah. However, 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 Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, Prabhupada's guru, explicitly rejected that idea that the national pride, the national honor should be based on 
that false philosophy. Because that's what you're saying now is exactly what Abhay Charande Prabhupada said to his guru. He said exactly the same thing. And Bhakti Siddhanta said, no, India is a great country. There is much to be proud of. We should unite, but on the right principles. And that was Bhakti Siddhanta's whole point. That was Prabhupada's whole preaching. You want to have a great nation, it should be based on Bhagavad Gita, not someone that doesn't even know our culture, our history. Yes, Maharaj. So, when now, like the Supreme Court said it should be based on the Vedas, and I mentioned, say, in the time of the Mahabharat, uh, what was the basis for the sense of unified identity? Was it acceptance of the Vedas? It was, they, it was soon came and they didn't yeah. accept the Vedas. Yes, we'll get back to that point. In the Mahabharata, it's based yeah. on shared culture and a share, and everyone accepts the Vedas as powerful, even the Asuras. The Asuras always have yeah. their hired Brahmins. Jarasandha, he had his Brahmins. They all have their Brahmins. And they all do because, and that gets back to my point about science, because the, the Yajna or the yagya, however you pronounce mm. it, uh, is science. I actually, I'll, I'll tell you the base. I'll tell you the basis of the Vedic science, in my view, having studied it. Is that first of all, you have a an, an amazing ontological fact. Ontological being the nature of existence itself. Yeah. That is because as Krishna and Krishna because Krishna, as he explains many times in the Gita, Krishna is everywhere within everything. And everything is within Krishna. What that means is, in terms of physics, is that every point, and a point, you know, technically is the smallest. Location, every point in the universe is within every other point in the universe. So just think about that for a moment. Every point in the universe is within every other point in the universe through Krishna. Now, that being the case, there is absolute interconnectivity of all points in the universe. And so if you can somehow or other plug into that, when you are at any point in the universe, you are actually at every point in the universe. I mean, as you can see, there are all kinds of possibilities here technologically. That's how yogic mystic powers came about when they could access higher well, dimensions. I'm talking about the nature of the universe, why these things are possible. Okay. Now here's another point. It's just like if you have a computer screen, you have icons. Hmm. The icons can be connected in various ways to physical objects in the world. For example, you can click on an icon and a bomb can go off somewhere. You can click on an icon, you can do remote surgery. Hmm. Now they have, you know, you can do remote surgery because you are what you see on the screen 
represents, in other words, you have a micro uh, cosmic icon that represents a macrocosmic object. Yeah. Now, actually, the way to understand Vedic sacrifice is that the arena, the sacrificial arena, was a computer screen. So that, yeah, so that, okay. so that, for example, I mean, scholars, what they do know, they don't understand all of this, is that in, 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 in Vedic culture, when you're, there were, first of all, there were two categories of sacrifices. One was the domestic, the griha. There's, there's a Vedic literature called griha sutras, sort of like domestic sutras or home sutras. Yeah. And those were sacrifices that the higher castes would just do at home, like daily Agnihotra and so on. But then you have the uh, Shota Sutras. Hmm. And, and these were sort of like great state events. It's just like, for example, there are certain things that only a state, a political state can afford to do, like have an army or provide electricity to everyone or you know, things like that. So. So there were these, what, what in Harvard they used to call solemn rites, where, where they would have these great events, these great sacrifices, which were also, by the way, an important part of the Vedic economy. Because uh, if you look, for example, at great Swayamvaras or um, you know, Ashwamedha, just all these great Vedic sacrifices or great weddings, the kings would distribute very generous charity to the people that need it. And there were two classes that needed charity, poor people, people who were sort of involuntarily poor and shudras and Brahmins who were voluntarily poor. And actually it's just like, for example, when, um, when a Brahmin came through um, Varnavata, not Varnavata, um, Ekachakra, where the Pandavas were hiding uh, incognito after the house of lack, uh, the Brahmin said to them, you know, there's going to be a great yagya. There's, there's going to be a great event at Draupadi Swayamvara. And so why don't you go there? And you, yes. can, and so, yeah. but what's interesting is that Brahmins, if you read the Mahabharata, Brahmins from all around, from all around the country were going there because that's, that was their economic basis. Because at those great, great events, there would be a very generous distribution of wealth, cows and clothes and jewels. And that's how these people lived. So, so, so these great events, these great sacrifices played an important role in the national economy. But also, but also at these sacrifices, uh, in, in the sacrificial arena, you have three fires. That's very well known. And so you'd have, you'd have a fire to offer to the gods, a fire for the forefathers, and then a you know, fire for, for this world. And so for, for what you actually wanted to happen in this world. Hmm. And so these fires were like computer screens, because, but the icons were not pictures, they were sounds. And so- Yes, the mantras and individual words. And that's why you see in, if you look at the Itihasa literature, 
Mahavarata, Ramayana, or the Puranas, Itihasa, Puranancha, Panchamo Veda, Uchate, which are said to be the fifth Veda. What's interesting is the power is in the idea. Just like, for example, when Prabhupada does his Bhagavatam, he says, I'm sorry, but English is not my first language, and he's translating from Sanskrit. None of that matters because the power is in the basic idea. If you understand the idea, that's why you can have so many Mahabharatas. You can have so many Mahabharatas because if you basically understand the story, it's the story, it's the idea. Whereas in the Vedas, in the Karmakanda Vedas, the power is not in the idea. And that's why there are no, you know, the power was in the actual sound because the sound wasn't science. And therefore, you have that famous case given in the Bhagavatam, where um, Mitrasur. yeah, uh, where yeah, yeah. where um, Twashta, the Twashta yes. wants to perform a sacrifice to produce a powerful being who will kill Indra. But now, what happened is that he was supposed to chant Indra Shatru, Indra Shatru an accent shatru, which means I'm producing a the mortal enemy of Indra. In other words, he was supposed to, by pronouncing Indra shatru, it's a tatparusha compound, which means mm. that, anyway, oblique semantic relation, anyway, I won't go into all the grammar, but what it means is that it stands for indrasya shatru, that to produce a being who is the shatru, the mortal enemy of Indra. In other words, will kill Indra. But due to inattention, he said Indra Shatru instead of Indra Shatru. So Indra Shatru, with that accent, it becomes a Karmadharya compound, which just means, anyway, I won't go into all the technical grammatical language, but mm. it's, it means Indra will be the mortal enemy of this person. Yes. And therefore Indra will kill him. So just by mis just by misplacing one accent, it's like for example, let's say for let, let's say you're building a rocket, and, and and of course it has all kinds of computer stuff in it, and let's say you just make one little mistake instead of taking off, it explodes. Right, I mean in the real yeah. world, you can make one, and and so. Therefore, the Vedic sacrifices were a physical science. And that's why I said their concept of religion, because just like nowadays, people, you know, most, they call it religion. You can call it Hinduism or Christianity, but what are people actually praying for? You know, most people are not approaching it as a transcendental spiritual thing. They just want something. And therefore, if you just want something, why not just do science? And that's what people did. So back then, the Brahmins didn't think they were doing religion when they performed sacrifices. They were scientists. If, oh, if, okay. if, you, if you have a group of scientists working in a laboratory, it's not religion, it's science. And so most of the Brahmins were not doing religion, they were doing science. amazing yeah so in a sense karmakanda was more like science because karmakanda does the same thing what science does 
Karma comes, yeah, it's not about religion. It's just like when you when you do science, modern science, they only work with the entities that they're aware of. They're not aware of devas. And therefore, they're not they're not aware of all these things. They're not, not aware of higher powers. Therefore, they're doing a gross material science. Although what we find is that now with the quantum mechanics headache, you know, the wave and the particle and spooky action at a distance and everything, hmm. because the universe is not merely gross physical things, they're, they've got a problem. It's just like, for example, let's say, let's say you're a little child and your parents are rich and they own a big estate let's say hundreds of acres. And so as a child, you think that your parents' property is the world because you're a child. And as far as you know, there's no limit. It's just, you know, as far as you can walk in any direction, it's your parents, it's your family property. But as you get older and maybe you get a car, you realize, no, there are fences around our property and most of the world is beyond this. And that's what's happening to quantum mechanics. Science is growing up a bit, and they're realizing that the physical world is just one little part of reality. Hmm. And so, so the difference between the Vedic science and the modern science is that in the Vedic science, they were aware of a much larger portion of the universe. Hmm. So that's why we can also have Brahmanas who are serving Asuras. Because they're they just, not really concerned with ultimate I, I, reality. Kim Jong-un, you know, that crazy person in North Korea, he has scientists. Every every murderous tyrant has, has that's scientists. A, hmm. okay, that's a provocative example, but I think, yeah. That's true. Well, look at so, Kongsa. Well, look at Kongsa. I mean, yeah. I mean, these are asuras. If you take, if you take, um, like, like Jarasandha, Kangsa, Shishupal, I mean, they all had their scientists. Yes, Ravana had his Yatudhanas. What's that? Ravana had his Yatudhanas. The Brahmins there in Rama. But the point is, he they did the yeah. sewers don't have Brahmins because at night they sit down and you know, eat puris and and drink hot milk and hear hear about the soul. I mean, and, you know, that's not what they're doing. Okay. Although it's interesting because in the Bhagavatam, when Kangsa was, even Kangsa sometimes in the Bhagavatam sometimes talks about the soul. And so, so the point is that. Um, but it's more for utilitarian purposes. He just it, wants to get off the hook. It's, a, it's not mostly, it's entirely for utilitarian purposes. Yeah. Okay. So, this, the Brahmins, so the Brahmins were the scientists. And most of the, and, and so the number, because look at look at it this way. And let me give you one example from the Bhagavatam, which I've meditated on because I'm doing Mahabharata. As we know, in the 10th canto, Dashama Skanda, Bhagavata Dashama Skanda, the 10th canto of the Bhagavatam, when 
uh, Kangsa and his evil ministers, when they find out that, that actually the devas have come and they're sending their anshas or sending their incarnations like the pandavas were incarnations of demigods and Krishna himself is coming. That's, and, so, and so what do the advisors advise him? They say, they say when they heard that Krishna's taken birth, that you should, you know, will kill all the newborn, all the male babies born in the last 10 days. And we have to kill the Brahmins. Who are, helping, who are helping Vishnu. Yeah, it's in the Bhagavatam, that with that, you know, okay, that the Suras, and it's even in the um, Mahabharata, that, you know, they, but now here's my point. In fact, they didn't kill all the Brahmins, and why would they kill Brahmins? You have to think about that, why? So, also, because there are Brahmins around the universe, why just kill the Brahmins on earth? Why would that, how can they destroy Vishnu by killing Brahmins on one little planet? What's the connection? So I, I, really, st I really stopped to think about this. And I think that Krishna, I think I understand what they, were, what they meant. First of all, um, not all Brahmins were Vaishnavas. In fact, Krishna says in the Gita that yoga nasta paranta, the spiritual science has been lost. And we know from the Mahabharata that when Krishna came, most of the Brahmins, or many of the Brahmins were not worshipping him. But still, why would you kill Brahmins? How does Krishna, how does Vishnu lose power if you kill Brahmins? I think there's an obvious answer in the minds of the Asuras. I was trying to figure out what do they mean? The Asuras, who were advising Kangsa, were actually very modern. They had the same philosophy as atheist science. They, had, they were actually atheist scientists. Because in their mind, and this is also, it's a type of Mimangsaka philosophy. Is I mean, think back, in, in the minds of the Mimangsakas, who are obsessed with performing Vedic rituals to go to heaven, the, the slogan, the motto of the Karma Mimamsa group is uh, Swarga Kamo Yajeta. Swarga Kamo, one who desires Swarga, heaven, Yajeta yes. must offer sacrifice. And so in their minds, because I actually took a class on the Mimamsas at Harvard by Krishna's arrangement. So for the Mimamsaka school, Karma Mimamsa, the power and this is very modern, actually. They're actually very modern. The power is in the mechanism. There is no God who controls it. And even if there are devas or, some, or Vishnu, whatever, the, the mimamsas are sort of like, um, what's the word, obsessively categorical. They categorize everything. They're very, you can see these are the people that later in Indian history, you know, became te technologists or computer tech. So they're very extremely categorical. And they categorize the gods, devas or Vishnu, as just paraphernalia. It's like in the same category as something like a little cup to hold water. It's just paraphernalia. If you're doing a sacrifice, you need paraphernalia. And one paraphernalia is 
the names of the devas. It's just part of the mechanism. Somehow those particular phonemes, those particular sounds just are part of the machine. That's all. Otherwise, mm -hmm. the gods have no power and they're not interesting. So the asuras were actually, they were physicalists. They believe, not exactly modern physicalists, but they believe the power is in the mechanism. That somehow or other the universe exists in such a way. It's like if you're a scientist, let's say there's a law of gravity, there's this, there's that, there's Einstein, space-time, whatever it is, you know, who knows why that's not our job. We just know that's the way the universe is. And so therefore, if you want to create bombs, if you want to create technology, if you want to create a better smartphone, you just use the universe as it is. It's a mechanism. You learn how the things work and where does it come from? We don't know, we don't care. We're just using the laws of nature as they exist. That was the view of Collins and his ministers. It's simply the way the universe is that when you perform a Vedic sacrifice, when you chant certain mantras, it unleashes power in the universe. No interest in why. And so therefore, from their point of view, when the Brahmins worship Vishnu, the Vaishnav Brahmins, they didn't want to kill other Brahmins. The Vaishnav Brahmins are building this high-tech thing, which is the Vedic sacrifice, which generates power, and they are channeling that power into Vishnu. So Vishnu is not empowering the Brahmins, they are empowering him. Oh, okay. So they are putting Vishnu in the same material world with its sources of mechanical sources of power yes and they think okay so it's, it's like one it's country like, would destroy the nuclear reactor yeah so one country might destroy the weapons of another country so like that they are thinking we'll destroy the like if, you're, if you're the head of a country and you tell your scientists build me a bomb like let's say iran you know the the the, the uh those fanatics and you know the fanatical leaders of iran they tell their scientists build us a bomb we want missiles. We need accurate long-range missiles. And so from their point of view, or, or let's say for so America or Israel, let's say they'll try to get rid of those scientists. Because the, the leaders, the religious fanatical leaders of Iran, they're not giving power to the scientists. The scientists are giving powerful weapons to the leaders. So if you get rid of the scientists, the leaders won't have military power. So that's how they understood the relationship between the Brahmins and Vishnu. Vishnu is a politician. The, the Brahmins are scientists. They are feeding into Vishnu this tremendous power of the Yajna, which has its own power. It's just the way the universe is, that you, you just do certain things, certain technology. It just generates power. And then the Brahmins are channeling this power into Vishnu. So if you kill the Brahmins, it's like you kill the nuclear scientists in Iran, they won't have bombs. Yeah. That makes sense. So Maharaj, you're saying that this kind of performance of Yajna was the unifying sense of, it was the unifier for uh, broad Indian culture? Well, or what was it at it, that it, time? It that just, was... It's just like nowadays, whether you're a Hindu or Christian or Jew, uh, you go to a dentist. Okay. 
because it's just science. And okay. so these sacrifices were just science. And so anyone that wanted something, you it's, it's like, you know, let's say you want to take a trip. If you're a Hindu or a Christian mm. or a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Jew, you fly on a recognized airline because they have the technology. Yeah. So so if you are if you are an Asura 5,000 years ago, you need scientists. How can you run a government if you don't have scientists? Okay. It wasn't, it wasn't about religion. It was not about religion. Even when all these Asuras, let's say, worship Lord Shiva in order to get different boons or the power or whatever power, they're not interested in Lord Shiva. It's just like, for example, let's say, let's say there's some country that has nuclear weapons, like let's say Pakistan has nuclear weapons, and so some other country wants it. So I'll just go there and, and you know give them billions of dollars, and they will you know accidentally lose some of their formulas, and it'll end up in our pocket. And so you know it's the same thing. Basically, you just go and bribe Lord Shiva, or you give him money, or you give him worship, and then he'll give us powers it's just commerce you just buy what you want and and the sacrifice is the technology you have to think of Vedic sacrifices as like playing the cultural role of computers okay so then we could almost call these as secular in the sense that although there's some worship but it was not the object was not the worship not religious Okay. When Jayadratha so Jayad Ratha worshipped Shiva to get the power to keep the Pandavas out of the Kuru Vyuha, the military formation, yeah, they, had no, they had no religious interest in Shiva. Okay. They, they that's not religion. They were just they were just acquiring power. It's not religious. Mm. So then was there no religious unifier at that time for people? So because you, you talk about philosophical monotheism. Ironically, ironically, the culture of the Mahabharata, the society, the Indian society in Mahabharata is not that religious. Because if you look at it, if you look at it uh, in the Mahabharata, which is a corrupt text also, by the way, as Madhva Sripad Madhvacharya says that. So it's, it's a corrupt text, but still everyone in the Mahabharata really just wants to go to Indraloka or Swarga. In other words, it's just like, let's say people in India now, there are many people who would like to get an American green card, isn't it? Mm. I mean, if you walk down a street in India just giving out American green cards, you'd have a lot of... It would be a stampede. It'd be yeah. a riot for that. Yeah. Yeah. So what people want in the Mahabharata basically is a green card for Indraloka. So Maharaj, if we don't call that as religion, then then almost all of Christianity and all of Islam, we can't even call that as religion, isn't it? Because there also people are aspiring for heaven. And... Uh, there also, it is not so. Maybe there are few people who are aspiring I for pure say, love. I mean, if you want, you could call it. You certainly wouldn't call it spiritual. 
Although what you find is in every religion, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, there are some spiritual people. There are yes, people who really are interested in cultivating love for God. Let's look in the dictionary about what the word religious means. Okay, it's related to religion. So let's just look up religion then. The belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially personal God. You see, but it's not a good religion. You see, that religion, that definition is based on the no, it's it's based on drawing a a um, a distinction between that which is empirical and non-empirical. You could say the devas are not empirical in the ordinary sense, although they are empirical because there is a process to see them. And so basically, it, that's a definition of religion and the definition of science are coming out of the cultural values of a materialistic society, especially a society in which uh, intellectual life is controlled by unreligious materialists. And so therefore, and go back to the definition of religion Because you can say religion is a pursuit or interest to which someone ascribes supreme importance. Example, consumerism is the new religion. And so therefore, you see what they don't distinguish in the dictionary because it's a materialistic dictionary is that some people are religious in the sense that they actually want to realize their own soul, become aware of their own soul, and they want to go to a spiritual realm or live a spiritual life. Some people have recourse to devas, demigods, or supreme god, or some supreme power, just because they want material things, or they want to go to some material heaven. So you can call it religious, and it is called religion, but it's not there's no real interest in spiritual life. And that's why nowadays people make this somewhat sarcastic distinction between religious and spiritual. spiritual. Yeah, spiritual, but not religious, they say. Yeah. Yeah. So then even in the Mahabharata's time, uh, say Krishna consciousness, was it also quite rare? Because in Bhagavatam also we have Muktanam, Siddhanam, that among millions there are there is one devotion devoted to the lord so krishna consciousness even in those times was quite rare people were so when you talked earlier about philosophical monotheism was that primarily among the intellectual elites and people themselves in general were doing their own worship was it yeah. like that? To some extent. For example, there, there are stories where Krishna's traveling. He'll come to a city. What was that city? Um, my God, I'm so rusty. It's, it's a city where... Um, Shrutadeva and Bahulashwa he meets. That yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, where were they? Oh. Where's the city that Janaka was from? The King Janaka. Mithila. Yeah, Mithila. Mithila. Yeah, Mithila. Yeah. So Krishna will come to a city and in that city, there are some very good devotees, a few. I mean, Krishna, 
it's interesting because also it's described when Krishna is going from Gujarat from Dwarka to Hastinapur or Indraprastha that the, 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 the roads are lined with people. They want to see Krishna. So Krishna definitely was a super rock star. I mean, I mean when he appeared, okay. Krishna was, and people knew, a lot of people knew that he's not an ordinary human being. But then, but then again, it's a time when demigods would come and asuras would come. And so there was a lot more interplanetary commerce. It was, it was not like the world we live in. And so most people knew Krishna is not just a human being. I mean, only the, the you know the most foolish people thought that. So, just but you can be so to say. Oh, he's not just a human being, or she's not. But that's like okay. There's there's like a number of people like that. Okay. You know, and so that wasn't that alone did not make you God or even close to being God. You could not be a human being. And that's what the Asuras were banking on. That's what they were, they were thinking, okay, Krishna's very powerful. The Asuras, they knew Krishna wasn't a human, but we, we're not humans either because they were actually Asuras. And so they okay. felt that Krishna was just a living being who had acquired a lot of power because of these you know, obnoxious Brahmins that are channeling the Yajna Shakti into Krishna. Hmm. So, um, so religion, if merely believing in something supernatural, then you could say Harry Potter is a religion, or you could say, you know, the uh, you know, people, witches and warlocks, you know, there it's a religion. So any, anything's a religion, any, any type of... Yeah, Star Wars is filled with, su with supernatural elements also. So yeah, almost you, everything fictional. Well, Star yeah. Wars, I think Star Wars, the idea is it's just much more advanced material technology. But but something which is, if you compare Star Wars to Lord of the Rings, in Lord of the Rings, it's a completely different kind of technology. It's magic or Harry Potter. So you could say Harry Potter is a religion because it's belief in supernatural things, things which are beyond. So, but ultimately, you could say about the magic in Harry Potter, you could speak about the advanced technology in the fictional Star Wars. You could talk about religion. You could just say that religion just means that people appeal to or are depending on certain forms of reality or technology that we don't know about at the present time. And yet that's too broad for religion because because, see, the, the dictionary definition is not very good. The belief and worship of a superhuman controlling power. But if you believe in some kind of science fiction worldview, there's some higher beings who are not human and are controlling us, is that really a religion? It says especially a personal god or gods, but that's not necessary for the definition. It can be a yeah. particular system. You see, they call it faith and worship. But what if you, what if you have faith that there's some planet with these higher beings that are superhuman, but they're not. It's not religion, and uh, so the definition is not. It's it's not a great definition. And okay. let's say you, you honor because the word puja in Sanskrit means worship, but also means honor. And and if if you're trying to get power from something, you know you. 
if you're trying to get a, a make a deal with a rich person, you worship, you honor the person, you take them out for a meal, you praise them. So it's, you know, we honor people to close business deals. We honor people to get admitted to prestigious universities. So we honor people for a lot of things. So if you have a combination of honoring and the person is not just a human, then you, according to the dictionary, you have a religion. But that's much too broad and it just, it doesn't really get at what we often mean by religious. Okay. So uh, the topic we were discussing was Krishna consciousness in historical context. So then you explained quite beautifully about how at the time of uh, Mahabharata hung things were and how in contemporary things, things changed because of say the uh, installation of monism. So well, even no, at no, that actually, time- I would say, no, no, not because of monism, because of tribal monism. So that for- example, Tribal monism. Yeah. So for example, you have these fanatical religions, most, you know, basically coming from the Middle East, where they say this is the only way or everyone should do this. I mean, if you look at the history of Islam, you look at the history of Christianity, it's this very aggressive, militaristic uh, spreading of their religion. And clearly with the understanding that we're better than everyone else, and if you don't have our religion, you don't really, you know, even though you could say there are countervailing statements in the Quran or the New Testament that could, you could take to indicate, well, other people also are in touch with God. But in practice, you know, very militaristic. If you look at Indian history, where Hindus were often second-class citizens in their own country. And so, um, or the idea of this really cute little charming practice of destroying the sacred places of the people you conquer and putting, you know, a church or a mosque there. And mm. uh, I mean, you go to a country, you invade it in the name of God as if God wants you to kill and subjugate these people. They have sacred places in their religion. You desecrate their sacred places and you put your own church or mosque or something. I mean, clearly, uh, you know, there's something really wrong there. So yeah. therefore I say tribal monotheism, tribal monotheism. Yeah. There was monotheism in the Greco-Roman world. There was monotheism in India. It's just, but it's not recognized as such because they didn't kill each other. Okay. So, now, Krishna consciousness, if we consider in the Mahabharata time, also was relatively rare. So then in today's world, also, we have people practicing. But then can we really expect that it will become like a mass practice? Like, or, a, yeah, like a world dharma? Yeah. Or do well, we expect it more? Doesn't hurt. Doesn't hurt to try. I mean, I think, I think that there will always be plurality religion. And of course, obviously, let's say there was a world where Krishna, con in fact, we know, for, if you look at Indian history, one thing I found very remarkable, because I, I taught the history of Indian religion, which is really just Indian history at the University of Florida, that course, and um, it was just remarkable how, because India, of course, just were many kingdoms back then. 
And so it was remarkable mm. how very often when you had a state in India, you know, whether it was Maharashtra or, you know, just all these different parts of India, where there was a Hindu ruler, it seemed like normally, not always, but normally, there would be equal rights for everyone. But when you had a Muslim ruler, there wasn't equal rights for everyone. And so it was, it was, it was an academic book I was reading, but there was a, a, a real contrast between the attitude of Hindu leaders and the attitude of Muslim leaders a lot of the time in terms of how they treated people outside their own religion. Of course, it's not every time, it's not everywhere, but still there was a no question that was the tendency. Okay. Yeah, but you know, there is a lot of uh, historical revisionism going on where often Islam is painted in a more charitable light and uh, desecration because, because of the Yeah, because there's an assumption which is very strong nowadays in general, and that is things may be ultimately just things of, of science or scholarship, like ethnic groups, races, the Muslims in India. And so the point is, if a particular, even though, even though it may be an empirical area, if a particular view in your mind will lead to immoral acts, then you change the history or even to explore the science is evil. Because ultimately, if you believe that the consequences of certain views, empirical views, the consequences will be immoral, then to hold those views, even if they are empirically, let's say you can make empirical arguments for them, to hold those views is itself evil. And the evil of those views is not really based on whether they're objectively true or not, because even to study it is considered bad. But rather, you have to hold the views a priori because they're necessary views to hold in order to ensure that very bad immoral acts aren't committed. So therefore, it's saying that it's interesting. It, it, it's subordinating any type of, even the very notion of empirically studying something is rejected in favor of a metaphysical principle that we want certain kinds of equality and justice and certain views, regardless of what the science says about it, cannot be enunciated because they lead to immoral behavior. And so- Even immoral is defined subjectively. Say for example, because there is a fear there will be Islamophobia. So anything critical about Islam will not be spoken. And, and that will be deleted from history also. Yes. Or at least it will be revised. Yeah, so, so, so the actual history is irrelevant. History does not have its own integrity. History should not be studied for its own sake to find out what actually happened. You write history only to uh, promote certain moral values, not to find out what actually happened. So is this the influence of the left Maharaj? Or how is this ideology coming up that I idea should be- I see the influence of whoever has intellectual power. When the right has power, they want to write history. It's like, you know, I mean, I mean, let's say who, who could get a job as a history professor when Hitler was in charge of Germany? 
Okay. And so I'd say, you know, when you have passionate people in power, whatever moral views they espouse, they demand that history be told in favor of those views. And to have leaders who are actually um, objective and just sort of academically neutral, that happens sometimes. It's just like, so, um, yeah, it's, it's like, for example, so in that sense, the leftists who want a sanitized, whitewashed history of the Muslims in India, although they're different, but in a sense, they're the same as people like Vivekananda, who wants to whitewash Hinduism or wants to tell, in other words, his, his, his version of Indian history has very little to do with Indian history, but he wants to bring about a certain uh, solidarity, a certain pride. And so therefore historical fact is radically subordinated to oh, certain, okay. certain emotions and beliefs that he wants to promote. Yeah, I think Winston Churchill wrote after the world or second world war that history will be kind to me because I'll write the history. So it's something similar, yeah. Yeah, so it's ironically Vekananda and all these sort of Marxist historic, you know, it's funny, the Marxist intellectuals in India, it's so funny, they're, they're so absurd because what they conveniently don't look at is that Marxists murdered between 10 and 20 times more people than Hitler. According to the yeah. Russian, according to the Russian archives, state archives, Stalin killed about 40 million people. And then Mao killed as many or more. You have the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. You have, you know, little Fidel Castro turning the whole island of Cuba into a prison, a prison, a prison island, and killing, you know, machine gunning in the back, anyone that just tries to sail a boat to some other place. And so, and then you have in Marx, by the way, and people say, well, no, they just didn't understand Marx. Oh, no, they did. I looked it up. And actually you find in Engels and Marx a, a very clear justification of genocide. Because they are sort of in the, in the pseudo, in, in, in the pseudo kind of pseudo social science of their age, because, you know, they're, because science has gone way, way, way beyond where they were. So it's sort of like the uh, the crude the crude social science of their time. They believed, I mean, they actually, Marxism is based sort of on this sociological determinism. The idea that um, people don't have that much free will, unless, unless I guess you're Karl Marx, but and, and, and people in general tend, their views tend to be shaped by the social structures and economic structures that they live under. And so therefore they say, I think Engels wrote this in 1849, that you, know, you may have to just eliminate entire social classes. So 
Another word for that, a direct synonym of that would be genocide. Let's say, for example, you have a, let's say you have a country where there are 20 million capitalists. You have to liquidate all of them. You have to kill all 20 million of them because they are sustaining economic and social and political structures which force people deterministically, which is, you know, to believe certain things. So, and that's why when Marxists got power, that's exactly what they did. They started killing millions of people because you have to eliminate whole segments of society. So the fact that this unscientific genocidal monstrosity, you still find intellectuals supporting it in India also, isn't it? It's just, it's just, uh, it's one of the wonders of the world that these people actually think they're intellectuals. It's horrible, you know, there is, for example, even China, Muslims are being persecuted and there are millions of Muslims who are in those pre-doctrination carry education camps as they call them. But a few incidents in India and there is a huge outrage or a huge... Uh, well, well, there is, actually, there, there is actually international outrage of the Uyghurs. A lot of people talk about that. So... Um, but still, um, yeah. Anyway, I guess I we've talked a long time, and we can continue in another discussion. Yes, Maharaj. Thank you. I'll just try to summarize. It was a wonderful discussion. You know, I I will if you would like to add something in the summary. Then we we talked on the topic of Krishna consciousness historical context. So you started by how there was no institutions in the time of the Mahabharat. And not, then, not, not as we have nowadays, not as we have, not nowadays. as we have institutionalized religion as we have it. So, we talked about how there was philosophical monotheism at a popular level, there were different kinds of worship, and then we elaborately discussed about polytheism and monotheism, how the search for religion, so reason means search for some broad unifying categories ultimately, in you're culminating in God or some ultimate reality. And then you talked about how religion, especially in terms of the Karmakanda worship, was more like science rather than anything metaphysical. And Hinduism in modern times, as it has been constructed, is based on a very ahistorical understanding where monism was used as a political tool for unifying. And that led to almost like a destruction of Vaishnavism, which was the most prominent expression of uh, devotion or spirituality in India. And that's why our acharyas were quite vehemently critical. And then later on, we talked about towards the conclusion how there is uh, <clears throat> this, this tribal monotheism has been very destructive, but uh, there is like Krishna consciousness, there's always the opportunity for us to share it. And thank you very much, Maharaj, for this wonderful discussion. The pleasure. I feel that there are so many bulbs which were going on in my head you know, so many points were connecting <laughs> and especially the explanation of why they were demons were trying to kill the brahmins also that was quite amazing thank well, you thank very much yeah thank you thank you for hosting me so Hare Krishna Hare Krishna Hare Krishna Maharaj.